0: We've been going through each week dealing with a survey of these. We're not doing in-depth studies of each book. We're not going verse by verse at this point, but just doing an overview, a survey, to kind of give some context to the passage. It's so important, and I mentioned Wednesday night, uh, that the most important thing when we come to the Scriptures is to know the context. If we take verses out of context... We come up with uh, things that are not necessarily true. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, somebody uh, shared with me, said, you know, uh, these people that will open their Bibles and just point their finger and expect God to show them something. Uh, and he said it's uh, there was a guy that did that one time, and he was uh, joking, of course, but he said a guy did that one time, and he pointed to a verse, and it said Judas went and hanged himself. And he thought, well, that's not a good verse, so he opened it again and put his finger down, and the verse said, Go and do thou likewise. <laughs> And he thought, boy, that's really not good. So he closed it and opened it again, put a finger on it and said, what thou doest, do quickly. And he said, boy, that's just not good. Uh, so I, I say all that to say this, that it is vitally important, vitally important. In the day that we live, even in our fundamental Bible preaching churches, our King James Version churches, it is vitally important that we understand the context of the passages. It's amazing to me how many times we misquote Scripture, because uh, not because the words are wrong, but because the context is wrong. It's so very important that we don't um, draw truth that we want it to be, because we've taken a verse out of context. Here's here's a problem that took place years ago uh, when when there began to be a different line of scripture. Uh, the early church believed in purity of the word of God, and they were very wholeheartedly um, for guarding the purity of God's word. Uh, about 150 years, about 130, 150 A.D., uh, we find a, another fellow coming along and trying to correct the Scriptures. And uh, his name was Origen. He corrected it over 30,000 different times according to his, his, uh, what he believed was correction. And uh, here's what took place in, in, in that mindset. is He came to the Bible already believing things and said, now the Bible is not in agreement to what I believe, so rather than changing what he believed, he changed the Bible. And you have two schools of thought. You have those that will come to the Bible saying, here's what I believe, I need to go find some Scripture to support it. And if I can't find Scripture to support it, then I'll find a verse that I can pull that's not in the context there, so it will support my point of view or my truth. That should never be the goal of a Christian. The goal of a Christian should come to the Word of God as a blank and an open page, and say, Lord, teach me Thy truth. I I want to know what God's truth is, even if it means that the truth I've been taught over the years or the truth I hold to is not necessarily the truth. And we as God's people must understand this. It's amazing to me how many times we hold to things that this preacher taught, that preacher taught, or this group believes and holds to, only to find out that it is not accurate according to Scripture. And as you begin to dig into it, it's very, very important. So the purpose of what we've been doing these last several months has been to give um, a, a bird's-eye view and give some of the settings, some of the background, uh, why these books were written, when they were written, and, uh, and the context that they sit in. Zechariah is a contemporary of Haggai. He's younger than Haggai. Uh, he is at the same time period and, and serving uh, once again Judah, because at this time the northern kingdom of Israel is in captivity with the Assyrians. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah has uh, been in captivity under the Babylonians, and um, and has uh, kind of uh, the Babylonians kind of assumed the Assyrian captivity into itself, and. Uh, then uh, Nehemiah and Ezra have already taken place. The remnant has already gone back and rebuilt the walls. They've rebuilt the foundation of the temple. If you'll remember in the book of Haggai, that uh, the big reason for God uh, coming to Haggai was to tell the people, you you are in error. You've you've gone to your own houses and this house lies lies waste. He says, now therefore go uh, uh, get the wood off the mountain and uh, I'll take and ple- build the house. I'll take pleasure in it. And uh, he spoke to them along those lines. Zechariah comes along, and while God rebuked Judah uh, for their loss of, of desire to rebuild the temple, Zechariah comes along, and he is preaching to encourage the remnant to continue in building the temple. He didn't want the the fire to die out. And by the way, uh, there's times we need that kind of preaching, isn't there? Uh, our, our hearts get stirred sometimes with a revival or a special service that God gets a hold of us. But the truth is, as we plod through the Christian life day after day, and we're persevering, we're trying to be steadfast, there's a need from time to time for us to be encouraged in the way so that uh, we don't uh, uh, backslide, we don't lose the zeal uh, of the Christian life. So Zechariah's um, goal, his purpose here is to bring encouragement, There are 14 chapters here. The first eight chapters are dealing with the encouragement uh, to the remnant to continue to do the work. Uh, The last five chapters are written describing uh, the future coming of the Messiah and His second coming. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a few moments. But it was written after the temple was rebuilt and uh, deals with the idea of the coming uh, Messiah and he uses eight different visions in four different messages and then he also uses two what he calls burdens uh that God has put upon his heart and he uses each of these things to uh, to bring to light uh in the hearts of the people um regarding the eight visions that there were uh five of them are dealing with God's comfort And uh, the first vision is that God will rebuild Zion and his people. And so God gives that promise to uh, Judah and to the Jewish people as a whole. And while keep in mind, even though there's a divided kingdom, they are under captivity. And um, the promises that God is making through Zechariah, who is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, it is to all Jews. It's referring to Israel as a whole nation. Uh, so a lot of these promises are uh, are intended for all the Jewish people. So God's going to rebuild uh, Zion and his people. <clears throat> the second vision is that God will judge their oppressors. And so those that have been used to bring God's judgment upon them, God's going to judge them. Uh, then he says in the third vision, he says that he will protect and glorify Jerusalem. And so again, these are things that as a Jew, if you can imagine, uh, are very encouraging uh are things they're in they're in captivity now and to know that God's going to uh, judge their oppressors to know that God's going to protect and glorify and uh, bring Jude, uh, Jerusalem back to its uh full glory uh these are things that are that are very exciting to the Jewish people uh the fourth vision is that uh Israel will be cleansed and restored uh the fifth vision is that God's spirit will empower both Joshua and Zerubbabel uh Zerubbabel was the governor Joshua was uh, the high priest, and so they kind of uh, coordinated in their ruling of uh, Jerusalem and Judah as a whole. The last three visions are dealing with judgment, and God judges three different things. I think these are very, very important, so we're going to spend a few minutes longer on this. The first one is that God is going to deal with individual sin. By the way, uh, while God is certainly concerned about the sins of the world, He certainly is concerned about our sin. And I think sometimes we minimize the sinfulness of sin by comparing ourselves with how corrupt and wicked the world is, and we think, well, we're really not all that bad. Uh, we, we've defined ourselves, and this is a danger in the Christian life, we've defined ourselves by how far we are from the world. And if we're not careful, we will use that as our unit of measurement. There's a problem with that with that mindset, and that is this, that the Bible says the world, especially in the last days, that the world is going to wax what? Anybody remember? Worse and worse. So the world is going to continue down this path of uh, of um, uh, deviance and, and towards sinfulness and depravity, and it's going to continue. And, and in fact, in the days we're living in, not only are they continuing down that road, we're watching it accelerate quickly. And we're seeing that the depravity and the, the evil imaginations of the minds of men uh, are only evil continually. That mindset is, is increasing exponentially. It's quickly and rapidly deteriorating. So if our measurement is our distance from the world, we will find over a course of time that even our position has moved and to the place where we may find ourselves at a point where a hundred years ago it was considered deviant, it was considered wrong, it was considered sinful, and yet today, because we're still away from the world, we may find ourselves in that place. The standard of measurement for our standards as a Christian, God's judgment on us individually, should never be a measurement of how we measure up to the world. It should always be how we measure up to Scripture. Because the Bible never changes. Its truth is there all the time. And so rather than, and I, I fear that so often in the day we live, there's an awful lot of preaching about, uh, and, and we ought to preach on the sinfulness of the world. I'm not, I'm not discounting that. But if we're not careful, we'll get it in the minds of people that we need to make sure that we're away from this sin. And while we ought to make sure that we're away from this sin, I would be much more rather inclined to say, I'd rather pursue after the holiness of God. That ought to be my vision. That ought to be my goal. the 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 the, the leaving of the sin will happen if I pursue holiness, if I pursue godliness, if I pursue what I want to uh, that I need to follow in this book. And I see that yes, God says it. And that's what I want, because I want to make sure I'm pleasing Him. I want to make sure I'm not doing anything to to grieve Him or to quench Him. And the the desire of my heart... In fact, if you want to read something that will encourage you in this, take time to read Psalm 119 in its entirety. And how often the psalmist speaks of the delight of his heart, the joy of his life, the fact that even sometimes he says, if it weren't for your Word, I, I, I wouldn't even be able to live. And I tell you, that's the kind of hungering and thirsting after righteousness you and I ought to have. But somehow, in the last 50 or 7500 years of preaching in our churches, we've made it such a, 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 an issue of stay away from the world, stay away from that sin, and we've not done enough preaching on pursue after the holiness. Now, I think we need to stay away from the sin. I'm, please don't come away from this morning and say, Pastor said we don't have to stay away from sin. Yes, we do. But let's not focus there. Let's focus on the holiness of God. Let's focus on the holiness of His Word. Let's focus on godly living. Let's work on what the what the apostles referred to as walking in the Spirit and not after the flesh. So very, very important that we understand. By the way, you can't do one without doing the other. You're not going to follow after the Spirit and fulfill the works of the flesh. It's not going to happen because they are opposites of each other. You're either going to serve one or you're going to serve the other. And the Bible's very, very clear about that. So, so let's not make our unit of measurement, our, our, how, how we measure up as a Christian, let's not make that based on our distance from the world. Let's make it based on our compliance to the holiness of God. How do I measure up to this book? The world can do what it wants to do. I need to make sure that I'm doing what this book says. And so do you. And so God's going to judge, and He deals with this in the, uh, the sixth vision, Zechariah deals with this, about God's judgment on personal sin. And yes, Judah had sinned. Yes, Judah was wrong. Yes, the nations around them had sinned, and they were wrong. But God first deals with, I want to make sure you know your sin is going to be judged. And we need to make sure we understand this. I pray for our country. I pray for this world and the wickedness of it that God uh, that God would uh, bring judgment or cause it to have a heart to come back to Him. But can I tell you this? As much time as we spend praying for our government or our country or our world, would to God that we would pray even more fervently, Lord, help my heart to be drawn close to You. That that would be the the, 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 the goal of our Christian life. By the way, that is the secret to victorious Christian living. You could go to seminars, you could go to conferences, and you could hear all these sessions on victorious Christian living. Can I tell you this? It's as simple as one decision, one decision: my will or God's will. That's it. If we'd ever get a hold of that and practice it, you wouldn't even need a pastor. You <laughs> wouldn't. You wouldn't. You'd be doing what God wanted. If you were learning to surrender to his will all the time uh, very very important that we understand this the second uh, uh, thing that he deals with regarding judgment this is the seventh vision that he has is that uh, he God will be dealing with their national sin and now God has already been doing this there's been some revival although it was a little bit limited under Ezra's ministry. Uh, The temple was begun, but then the people kind of lost heart. The revival dwindled after about two years. Um, They began to go to their own houses, and the house of God was still lying waste. And their emphasis was on their comforts, their creature comforts, living a life that made them happy, uh, at least what they thought was happy. And they neglected God's house and the worship that God wanted them to have for Him. And uh, so God uh, is going to, to deal with their national sin. And then finally, in the last vision, Zechariah deals with and gives um, uh, a message to Judah and to the Jews that God is going to be the judge of the nations. Now, as he gets to this point, he's referring to uh, the second coming and the millennial reign, the tribulation period, and the time that God uh, is going to judge the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And uh, so there's a wonderful tie uh, in the last portion of these eight visions between the book of Zechariah and the book of Revelation. If you ever study, and we just got done studying Revelation, there are a lot of, um, a lot of things that uh, interconnect between some of the things that Zechariah taught and some of the things that were uh, taught in Revelation. Then he gives four messages. In light of these eight visions, he gives four r- messages. The first message is he rebukes empty ritualism. Uh, basically, people were going through the motions. Uh, by the way, uh, we, get, we get critical when we read things about Israel. And we say, boy, I just can't believe they would do something like that. The truth is, if we're not careful, we do this too, don't we? We go through the motions. Uh, we, we have our devotions because we know we're supposed to have our devotions. Or we go through the, the time of praying before a meal simply because it's the ritual that we go through. And there's no heartfelt uh, worship involved. There's no heartfelt thanks involved at, at certain points if we're not careful. We will find ourselves caught in empty ritualism. And so uh, the people were going through the motions, but their heart was far from Him. And uh, very important that as a Christian we fight apathy. We fight this this callousness, this carelessness in the Christian life. Uh, The Christian life is more than just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It is a pursuit, a love, a heart for righteousness and to to be drawn as close to the Lord Jesus Christ as we possibly can in our walk with Him. That's the Christian life. Uh, The second message is a reminder of their past disobedience and coming judgment. The third third message he gives is about the restoration of Israel, that God is once again, even after he's brought uh, chastening to them, he's going to restore them. And then the last one is their recovery of joy in the millennial kingdom uh, as God restores Israel. We found that out in the book of Revelation here a few weeks ago. Uh, God's restoration of Israel as his people, and he will be their God and uh, there's going to be great joy there. They're going to um, uh, enjoy eternity. During this period right now, uh, from the time of Christ until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're living during a period of time where God has chosen not to interact with Israel the way that He had previously and or the way that He's going to uh, after the rapture and those types of uh, time frames. And God has rather chosen to use local churches and those that... Uh, have uh, been saved, and God is working right now through uh, the church and, and the churches and those that uh, are Christians. But that does not believe, mean that He has replaced Israel. Uh, there is such a thing as what's called replacement theology. Some people believe that God has cut off Israel and has replaced them and that Israel is no longer His people. Israel is still His people. He's not choosing to work through them during this period of time. But rest assured, in the time of Revelation, he does restore them and bring them back to his people once again. Uh, And so, yes, they are his people. There is no replacement here. Uh, We have been grafted in. We've been given a privilege for a period of time to be used. And what a wonderful privilege it is to be used to serve the Lord. Uh, Some people look at the the service of the Lord as something we do grudgingly or something we do because, oh, i got to do this. There is a great privilege. God could have used anything He created to accomplish His work, but He chooses to use us. What a wonderful joy that is. Then He gives two burdens. He's burdened about uh, the rejection of Israel to the coming King. So uh, He does see prophetically... Um, the time that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be born and come to this earth as the Savior and Redeemer of man. And he knows from this prophecy that Israel is going to reject him at that time. And he's burdened over this. He, he pleads with Israel and tries to get them to understand this. Um, but he sees this. The second one is uh, he does see the coming of the king during the millennial reign and at the end of the tribulation period, the restoration of Israel. And he finally sees the acceptance of Israel as Christ being their Messiah. And by the way, rest assured that while they may deny it today, there is going to come a time where Israel, the remnant of Israel, will look to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. He, they will acknowledge Him as such, and so He uh, speaks of that. So these are the uh, the breakdown of the book, and if you'll keep those things in mind as you read through it, it may help uh, with some of the understanding of the passages, what He's dealing with. Some of them use prophetic terminology and things that are symbolic, and it helps us to understand really what the purpose of each of these are as we study them, uh, uh, there's not a lot known about Zechariah. Zechariah is the author. Uh, there's there's no doubt about that, or little uh, discussion even about that because of verse one in verse uh, chapter one and verse number one. Let's look there very quickly. In Zechariah one in verse number one, in the eighth month in the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of uh, Ido, the prophet, saying. And so he is uh, from a line of prophets. His lineages. Prophetic, and God comes to him and brings the word of the Lord to him. So there's no doubt that Zechariah is the author of this particular book, the human author of this book. Uh, And uh, he was born uh, in Babylon. He returned to Jerusalem with his grandfather during the time of uh, Nehemiah and that returning of uh, folks, the remnant, back to Jerusalem. Um, And then um, there are 29 other people in Scripture that are named Zechariah, believe it or not. And uh, that's a lot of people that are named that. And uh, his name means, and I'm going to use uh, a pronunciation because there is no uh, current pronunciation for God's name. God's name uh, is uh, YHWH and uh, no vowels and there is no uh, official uh, pronunciation of that. There is someone who has added some vowels to it and today so we know that we're referring to that name. We use the word Yahweh, even though that's not how you pronounce it. But the only way we know to get that across to people is to use that. It really has more of a breathy sound uh, and is an unpronounceable name. Uh, but it means Yahweh remembers. I'm going to forgive the fact that I'm using the, the, the pronunciation of Yahweh. I have no other way to indicate to you the name of God remembers. And that's what Zachariah's name uh, means. And a number of these people, it was kind of a blessing to be named this. And there, uh, it's reflected by the fact that there's a lot of folks in Scripture that were named this. Uh, he is a contemporary to Haggai. He was uh, prophesying during the reign of Xerxes, king of Persia, and uh, the time where Esther would have been queen. And so the same time frame, the same time period, all of that would have come together. Now, I'm going to spend a, a little bit of time here on the Christ of Zechariah. Uh, over and over again, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ is found in the Old Testament. There's people out there who say, well, you won't find the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. But He is all through the Old Testament. Everywhere you look, He's in there. Zechariah is one of the Old Testament prophetic books that probably refers to Christ uh, as much as some place like uh, like Isaiah would be. Isaiah was the, the largest uh, mention of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, Zechariah would probably be the second, I would think, if I had to, to uh, rate them and say this is uh, the second most mentioning of Christ in an Old Testament prophetic book. Uh, let's look at a bunch of Scriptures together. Uh, Zechariah deals with both the first coming of Christ uh, when he comes as a baby and uh, grows up in his earthly uh, ministry, and he also refers to the second coming of Christ. Now, as most prophets in the Old Testament They see things uh, on a linear basis, and they don't always see the time periods between them, uh, but they do see the actual events. And so uh, he does refer to both of these. And he pictures Christ in his uh, prophetic uh, messages as both a servant king and also uh, 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 both God and man. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, we know, was both God and man. He humbled himself, took part in the form of man, and was made in the likeness of man. Uh, and so he was 100% man, but also 100% God. He's the only one who ever was uh, that. And uh, so he refers to him as both of these things. Look with me in chapter 3, verse number 1. We're going to look at several passages here, and uh, then we'll be done. Zechariah chapter 3, let's look in verse number 1. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? And so one of the pictures that Zechariah uses here uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, this angel of the Lord. Uh, this uh, one that is standing um, uh, next to uh, the throne. And it says in verse 2, And the Lord said unto... Uh, I'm sorry, back, uh, verse number 1. Uh, uh, the angel... Uh, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Uh, that is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Satan is known as the accuser of the brethren, is he not? At this point in time, he still has access to God. He still is standing there accusing the brethren. And the Bible teaches us that Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our advocate when, the, when Satan brings accusation against us, if we've been saved, the Lord Jesus Christ steps forward and says, that may be true, but put that on my account. The price is already paid. doesn't matter whether he's done that or not. Uh, the price has been paid. And boy, what a wonderful truth. Uh, what a wonderful thing. So he refers to uh, Christ here as the angel of the Lord and uh, the one that is uh, rebuking Satan. And uh, then he also uh, refers to... Um, him as the righteous branch, if you look down to verse number 8 of chapter 3. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they uh, are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. And so he is this uh, righteous branch. Also in verse, chapter number 6, if you'll turn over there real quick. Chapter number 6 and verse number 12. So if you ever have people say, well, I don't know that Jesus is mentioned or referred to in the Old Testament, you can take Him to these passages and show that this is speaking of Him. Verse number 12 uh, of chapter 6, And speak unto Him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man, whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and shall build the temple of the Lord. And again, a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in His first coming. Then in chapter number 6 and verse number 13, chapter number 6 and verse number 13, even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And so here he is referred to uh, as the king priest. He's both the ruler and the priest uh, during this time. And again, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to uh, chapter 3 for a moment and verse number 9. Chapter 3 and verse number 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Uh, these seven eyes are dealing with His judgment. And uh, these it is, again, referring to uh, the stone with seven eyes being the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the one that will be uh, the judge during that time. Chapter number nine, and verse number nine. Again, there's a lot of references here uh, to Christ. Chapter nine and verse number nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy King cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt. The fowl of an ass. And so, uh, again, we see here the triumphant entry of the Lord Jesus Christ prophesied. And uh, he is referred here as the lowly king. Even though he is the king, he's not coming in his grandeur and his glory. He's not riding the golden chariots uh, and uh, the white horses. Uh, He's riding upon, the Bible refers to here as an ass and the uh, the colt, the foal of an ass and that uh, that he is coming as a lowly king. And so Israel is being foretold. It's a wonder why they didn't understand that when Christ came on the scene, when they saw him ride in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and fulfilled the prophecy, it's a wonder why more of them didn't say, this is our Messiah. Uh, they didn't, uh, even though they had been warned in Zechariah. So the question comes, why didn't they? Is it because they didn't have enough Scripture in their hands? Is it because they didn't, they didn't understand all these Scriptures of prophecy that foretold the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that why they didn't understand He was the Messiah? I think there's two things at play here. One is there was ignorance of the Scripture in many cases. Ignorance of Scripture in many cases. And then there was a rejection of Scripture in the rest of the cases. And that is the same problem that we have in the day that we live today, is it not? You'll find one of two things happens every time men are brought into contact with the truth of God's Word. There's either an ignorance of it or there is a rejection of it. And every single time you find people rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be because of one of those two reasons. You cannot come face to face with the truth of God's Word and deny Christ unless you simply don't know about it or unless you simply choose on purpose not to believe it. There's either an ignorance of it or a rejection of it. And uh, this is certainly the case, as uh, Zechariah has very clearly shown uh, what to expect when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Chapter 10, verse number 4. Chapter 10 and verse number 4. Out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. And again, now he's dealing with some of the judgment that's to come. And he refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the cornerstone here. He refers to Him as the nail, and he refers to Him as the battle bow. Alright? All four of those things. The cornerstone, the nail, and the battle bow. And chapter 11, let's look in verse number 4, and we're almost done. Thus saith the Lord my God, feed the flock of the slaughter whose possessors slay them, and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord, but, lo, I will deliver the men, every one, into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. And I will feed the flock of the slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty, the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Then said I, I will not feed you that that dieth, let it die, and that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off, and let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, and that I might break my covenant, which I had made with all the people. And it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. For they weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it into the potter, a goodly price that I was prized out of them, and I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Um, a clear picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the good shepherd, but he was rejected, and he was sold for 30 shekels of silver. I mean, how much clearer can you get on picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet they still rejected Him when He came. Chapter 12 and verse number 10. Chapter 12 and verse number 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon Me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for Him as one mourneth for His only Son, and shall be in bitterness for Him as one that is in bitterness for His firstborn. And here we find Him pierced. He's the pierced one. And again, beautiful prophecy of what was to come with the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 13, verse number 7. Awake, O sword, against My shepherd and against the man that is My fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn My hand upon the little ones. And here we find uh, that... uh, uh, he is one that brings cleansing, uh, that the sheep shall be scattered, and He will turn His hand upon the little ones. And uh, then in chapter 14, and I'm not going to take time to read the entirety uh, of the chapter, uh, but He talks about the coming judge and righteous King, and He is pictured all throughout the chapter 14, which, by the way, is the key chapter to this book. Uh, if there's one chapter that uh, points to the Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, It certainly would be chapter number 14. And the theme of the book overall is to prepare for the Messiah. And he refers to both the first coming and the second coming. Uh, There's an awful lot of prophecy here. If you ever get to a place where somebody says, well, I don't think Christ is mentioned in the Old Testament. Probably one of the best books you can go to other than Isaiah would be Zechariah. And I would say between those two books, it should not be very hard to show the Lord Jesus Christ there. Alright, so uh, we've got one book left to go next week, and we will be done with the Old Testament. And uh, then I'm not sure yet if we're going to continue doing the New Testament survey, uh, or if we will go another direction. There's another study I'd like to begin, um, and I may do that here at the first of the year. So, i um, not sure yet which way we're going to go with that, but uh, looking forward to it. I've enjoyed surveying these books in the Old Testament. It certainly has given us a lot of um, the setting, the context. Uh, when we go to read these things now, a lot of it makes much more sense to us because we understand what's going on during this time period. And so I hope it's been a help to you. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer and then we'll have our next service here in about 10 or 12 minutes. Father, we are grateful for Your Word. And Lord, even just knowing, uh, knowing the history and the background. And then to see the prophecies, to see the things that You've said and spoken of, We begin to see your heart. We begin to see some of your reasoning, some of the things, and we begin to understand more of your attributes and more of your ways.